Hi, I'm Leon Gorin, president of PEO Leadership, a peer-to-peer leadership advisory firm. We're an amazing community of CEOs, presidents, and senior executives. Ask yourself, are you learning as fast as the world is changing? It's time for Ontario business leaders to band together for counsel and support. It's time for you to tap into the business wisdom of our peer groups and unlock new ways to grow. I want you to come out of this COVID crisis a better leader and your organization ready for what's next. Take the first step at peo-leadership.com. So Angie, thank you for joining us and welcome. And um, so I thought we'd start with a little bit of your journey. You started in the whole corporate life. You spent many, many years there. And then you progressed into the whole charity sector, charitable sector. And I mean, if when I meet you, I'm like, I, I almost think you've been in this industry, in that sector, in your entire life. But, but it hasn't been the case. So maybe take us through the journey. What sort of transpired? What, what flipped the switch for you? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Leon. I think that, I mean... When you ask a kid what they want to be when they grow up, most of the time they don't know, or sometimes they do know. But I think what would have characterized me was I was a kid who never knew what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I just kind of tumbled into this telecom career, to be perfectly honest. And it went really, really well. And I learned a lot about myself. And I loved it, right, in terms of the organizations I worked for and what I got to experience and the training and development they gave me and the people I got to work with. Um, <clears throat> But as I um, moved on in my career, I got to a point where I just realized I actually personally didn't care if anybody bought my stuff. And I was in sales. That's a problem. (laughs) Like I was good at doing it. And I was good at doing it mainly because I was a relational and I was a communicator from a gift set. But um, I wasn't passionate about the business I was in. And that just really started a reflective process for me that said, well, you know, where, where could my gift set contribute to something I'm actually passionate about? Is there something I can do that, that could get me excited to jump out of bed every morning and go do this and even foster more great, uh, greater creativity in the work. Right. And so that began a reflective process that actually led to me making the jump ultimately to the nonprofit industry, because I realized that the thing I was most passionate about was uh, advocating for people who cannot advocate for themselves. And I mean, as a kid growing up, were you ever involved in any of this stuff? Or is it just when you started to reflect and start thinking about it? Like, can you think about something earlier in the days that... Like, can anybody do this, I guess? Or is it really, is a beckoning and a call? I think anybody could do it if that's what they wanted to do. I think that if you, I mean, for me, and for many people like me who've done this kind of shift or who have been in this sector all their lives, there's usually some sort of backstory, which is why they're passionate about it, right? And so I do too. I grew up, I was raised by a single mom in, you know, subsidized housing and uh, have, you know, no, I mean, I have, a, I have I had a great loving mother and a good, good story growing up, but um, some lived experience of poverty and what the challenges are with that. And, uh, and so I think, you know, the passion for me to do this comes out of, out of, um, out of that lived experience. Um, and oddly enough, just a fun full circle story where I'm serving now at Young Street Mission is literally only four city blocks away from where my mom moved us from Halifax to live in this like rundown little rental house 
when I was six years old. So I'm serving families like mine, um, you know, you know, just a decade or two later. Okay, more than a decade or two later. But <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Was Young Street, how, how old is Young Street Mission? We were founded in 1896. So we're about to be 125. So stay tuned. There's going to be some exciting stuff next year. Oh, that's amazing. So it actually was there when you were six years old. Who knows? Maybe you're walking by it and going, hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't remember it, but it was there. (laughs) So tell us, you know, on Young Street Mission pre-COVID, let's not go to COVID yet, but what's it like to run that organization before all the craziness happened? You know, who are you serving? Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, just maybe giving the members a sense of who you serve and and that's probably the biggest piece in understanding what you're all about. Sure. So, um, you know, we so we were founded in 1896 and we've grown a lot. So now we actually serve about 11 to 12,000 unique individuals a year out of six buildings in the downtown east. And um, that's hundreds of thousands of visits. And the uh, three populations we focus on, there are actually five population groups that experience a disproportionate degree of poverty in the city of Toronto today. And a number of years ago, we undertook to develop a strategic plan, five-year plan, and we decided to focus on three of those populations because we know how to serve them and entrust the other two to people that know how to serve those populations. So we focus on uh, homeless youth in particular. Um, families in crisis, and in particular, uh, single moms and families that are um, in current interaction with children's aid to try to hold those families together. And and also um, new Canadians, obviously, families and new Canadians. And then the the third population are adults who are, are coming from generational poverty. So their family has been on social assistance for multiple generations. And um, and there's a sort of a stuckness in in poverty and a lack of hope that anything could change. So that's the third group. So in the times, again, before COVID, again, was it, has that been a growing population? I'm just curious, like in the Toronto, yeah. how do you keep, is the demand continually increasing? I mean, the economy was so great until... March, and I'm just curious, is, but are there still more and more people who are crying this assistance? Yeah, well, I mean, Toronto hasn't been doing so great from a poverty perspective, and we know that there is um, there are systemic um, factors that lead to inequality when an economy grows. In fact, if you look at the correlation between high, high GDP growth economies and income inequality, there's a one-for-one positive correlation. Wherever there's high GDP growth, there's high growth in income inequality. So there's something about the way we grow our economy uh, around the world, not just here, that increases income inequality. And that was, we're no exception in Toronto. So we actually, Young Street Mission serves in the epicenter of child poverty for the country. There are the highest number of children living in poverty exactly where we are located in Regent Park. So um, it's growing. And there are lots of things that I think we probably could do. And I think I'm hoping that this, this crisis and how it's highlighted the needs and the, you know, the existence of people who are falling through the cracks might actually motivate us to, my biggest hope is, is that 
people don't just give money, although that's helpful to organizations like ours, but actually give their brains and figure out how to solve this problem. That would be way more important than anything else. It's interesting you say it, it matches to GDP. So, you know, in this environment where things have just gone crazy, right? High unemployment, uh, recession today, um, challenging times for you guys. I mean, we can talk about how you've been pivoting and stuff. That it actually wouldn't run the numbers and the demand even greater now. Like, I, I'm personally worried that we're going to have a massive inequality here between the haves and the have nots. It's going to get far worse. It is. It is. It already is. I mean, our numbers at our food bank, in a typical food bank week before COVID, we served uh, enough food for 600 people a week. And, um, and last week, we served enough food for over 2,000 people wow. in one week. So 600 is, is like an average day now, not, not the whole week. And there's a lot of new users to the food bank. So, and, and it doesn't, it stands to reason because most of the people that are in our neighborhood are people who, if they have been working and not needing the food bank, <clears throat> their employment is one or two or three part-time jobs without any benefits. And they're kind of just scraping it all together. Yeah. And those are the first people to be laid off, right? So they're the, they have to come to the food bank because they have no reserves. So what are you doing? I mean, you're running this organization. These are really difficult times. We, we talked earlier, I had put in the newsletter a little bit, what you had done with the relay and stuff. Maybe let everybody know, bring us up to speed how that really went. And um, maybe where are you, you going to take it? Because you've still got some challenging times ahead of you. Yeah. So, I mean, this was such a gift to us, actually. We, we didn't expect it at all. And it was really the corporate community that came around us in a really strong way, but I just sent a letter out. When we started the food bank and the COVID operations, we knew we were gonna be in the hole every week. And we ended up being in the hole about 30,000 a week that I was funding out of reserves in my general fund to get by because we just knew we had to do this. I mean, we were, we've, we've served this city through the Spanish flu, two world wars, the Great Depression. Um, we exist for this time. This is why we're here. So there was no choice serve or not serve and we just trusted that we had to find the money and that it would come and so I wrote a letter to our counselor and I said we're in the hole 30,000 a week I can try to do this for the next few weeks but then I'm going to be faced with some difficult decisions either letting staff go or cutting back service and turning people away so she went to bat and uh, ended up talking to a friend of hers that that had this idea a YSM relay which was, let's go to a corporate leader and ask them to be the lead donor to fund one week's shortfall, $30,000, and then to pass the baton by calling another CEO friend and saying, will you fund the next week, et cetera, et cetera. And so in 10 days, we raised $340,000 from 20 companies. So not everybody was able to give 30, but different amounts came in and, uh, and it funded our first three months. So, and we didn't do a thing except say thank you a lot <laughs> and social media and all those other things that you do, but we didn't, we didn't have to do anything to raise that money. They did all the work and all the calling. Wow. It's amazing. Eh? How it all comes together, the stress, yeah. trauma, and then you guys come up with some new ideas on how to pull it together. Yeah. Yeah. So, going so where do you forward, go from here? 
Like yeah, so going forward, I think um, we asked for three months at the beginning because we, we just were like, okay, well, we don't ask for too much and we don't know how long this is going to be. But we, we have a real sense now that we're going to be in a heightened service demand situation for a year at least. And, um, and I started to think about the name. They, they named it the YSM Relay. And I thought, what a great name because if you ever ran track, you know, it's four laps for a mile on track. And there's relay races and the first runner hands the baton and then the next runner does the next lap, et cetera. So we're really actually hoping that we can find another group of companies to run the next lap and that'll do the next three months. And then another group of companies to run the third lap and then the fourth lap. And uh, just the shortfall, just pick, I mean, we're, we're a pretty decently healthy financial charity. We do a good job. We can make sure we, we raise enough money to keep our people employed and offer the programs and services. But these heightened costs um, are just too much. And, uh, and so if people, if the corporates can come alongside and say, yeah, we'll, we'll fund your shortfall so that you can meet this heightened need, um, like the first group of 20 did, it's just, it's such a relief and uh, oh, yeah. a great encouragement for our staff as well. Oh, that's wonderful. No, that's great. Uh, question for you of the, your numbers have increased drastically. The people that come, are they eligible? Are they collecting, let's say that $2,000 a month that the government program has put in place? Do you believe well, many yeah, of them actually of them get that money? Yeah, a lot of them are. We help them find that actually. Our care managers still call out to all, all the people. So we're still in touch with everybody and we help them figure that out. But if you do the math, and I know there's some controversy over this, through a business lens. So I did the math and that 2000, if you do the math is 1333 an hour, $13 and 33 cents an hour. Yeah. Um, so it's not a ton of money. And if you have a family that you're trying to feed on $13 and 33 cents an hour, it's pretty tough. And even the numbers, if you look at the daily food, uh, uh, bread bank numbers on food bank users in any season, on average, I think the latest number is uh, $7.80 or $7.83. But basically, a family that, that is in that sort of income situation, after they pay their rent because rents are so high, and not everybody can live in subsidized housing because there's not enough of it, so they're living in market rents. Yeah. After they pay their rent, they've got $7.83 a day left for everything else they need. So if let's say they are working or getting something going that they're out looking for jobs and using transit, um, that's another, that's what's transit, 325 each way. So that's okay. 650. So that the, the dollar 33 is what you have left to feed yourself for a day. Yeah, to make things even scarier, that $2,000 may go away, right? They prolonged it for a few more months. So that may end up putting more stress on your on YSM as well. Yeah, yeah, most likely. So, Angie, I want to really thank you for uh, joining me today and, and chatting about it and, and telling us a little bit of your story. If members or whoever's listening to this snippet wants to reach out to you, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, I mean, they can. Uh, my email is apeters at ysm.ca. And, um, you know, the, and I, I guess, I don't know, can we find each other as PEO members through PEO somehow? Yeah, we can do it through the mobile app as well. So yeah. if anybody's looking for you, absolutely. 
Yeah, yeah. And thanks for that. And I want to end on a hopeful note. Like, is I think that the relay actually is a reason for hope, right? You know, yep. as hard as things might get, and they might get harder. I think there's hope in the relay because it just shows the strength of community and that together we can get through this if we share the burden. So I'm, I'm grateful for, uh, for what we've received so far. Well, I'm grateful that you're part of a part of our organization. You bring a whole, you know, just having you there and sharing your thinking. And I'm, I'm glad we're able to sort of bring some brains to the table as well. Uh, helping you and YSM. That's, you know, Thanks, Angie, so much for your time. If you're interested in our live webcasts, The Way Forward Live and or any other snippets, please take a moment and visit us at po-leadership.com. Thank you again for joining us. That concludes our session for today.